on. Okay, super. Recordings ready. Welcome to the Investor Ready Funding Podcast, where we discuss all aspects of startup and scale up fundraising and talk to both the businesses who've raised successfully and the investors who've chosen to inject their cash into early stage ventures. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Cushion, founding partner at Worth Capital, a London-based VC that invests up to 250k at seed stage via a monthly competition. Welcome, Matthew. Hi. So I've got absolutely tons of questions to ask you today. Um, and really, first, I just wanted to ask you to, to walk us through your background and, and how you actually came to be in venture capital. Sure. So I'm a retailer by trade. So I grew up really with Woolworths, actually. Um, by the time I was 28, I had an eighth of the business. So about £250 million a year turnover and full P&L accountability and then I got headhunted into the John Lewis partnership to re-engineer the supply chain for John Lewis department stores um, and then it was about that time that having kind of built up a little bit of a property portfolio um, I started to invest and I got really lucky on my first seed investment and turned I think it was 58,000 pounds turned that into 380,000 in just four years um, so at that point, I thought, well, I might as well carry on. What could possibly go wrong? And of course, <laughs> then I've, I've uh, understood that there's loads that can go wrong. Um, but that kind of really gave, gave me the bug and also gave me the kind of play money to carry on investing. Sure. And, and in terms of worth capital, can you just talk us through a bit more what the investment thesis is for, for worth mm -hmm. capital and, and the approach to investing? So... Myself and my mate, Paul, uh, we've always been investing together as kind of private angels. It's always been very hard for us to look at each other and think that somebody's going to, the other one's going to have a success that we're not going to enjoy together. Um, so we've been doing it and we kind of found that, of course, we make better decisions if we make them together. Uh, it's more fun. Um, we've got better chance of helping the businesses if we're using both our expertises. Uh, so about five years ago, we decided to, um, on the back of taking a, a, a kind of a proper review of where our portfolios were and where we've been successful and unsuccessful, we kind of we came out with some insights that we thought was quite interesting. And on the back of that, we thought we could innovate something in the market that was very different. And so we set up Worth Capital to do just that. And uh, so that combines. Paul's experience, he's been an entrepreneur since we were at college together. He's built up various businesses uh, um, in the marketing space. Uh, and then my experience with big retailers. And then latterly, I've also been an innovation consultant. Uh, and in fact, I still do that. I still help very large businesses like IKEA, AB InBev, um, uh, Coca-Cola Group, etc. So we kind of put, we, 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 we thought our expertise would go well together and we had this thought of having a competition as a way of finding different deal flow to, that everybody else was after. And so to get to answering your actual question, which is our thesis, um, our thesis is relatively loose. It, what we look for is 
is real innovation, but that can be product innovation, service innovation, experience innovation. In markets that are um, underserved uh, and high growth, so there's room for that innovation to mm. um, find a foothold. That where the, the, the thing, the product, the service, or the experience has the basis to build habitual consumption. Uh, and what we mean by that is that the, the end user would come back again and again for more of the same. Uh, but we deliberately say consumption. This is not about necessarily only consumer businesses. This is also B2B. Uh, and for our mind it doesn't really make too much difference if that that habitual consumption is there but mm. we go after that is that that's the ingredients for building a loved brand and a loved brand is really important because a that's how you build revenue and that's how you continue to build revenue at various different stages of the business but it's also you know, we can increase exit value for our investors because you know, we're realistic enough that if you go in at seed stage, you're not necessarily going to sell out right at the top. And what you want to do is you want to leverage beyond just a multiple of revenue or a multiple of EBITDA. So if you've got brand equity in there as well, mm. then that kind of um, accelerates your returns. Definitely. Super. Thank you. And um, across investing, particularly over the last year or so, um, diversity has become a, a headline theme um, and uh, I, I know you've got quite a strong stance on on diversity and investment perhaps you could just tell us a bit more about your thoughts on on that yeah so we've so, so our, our point of view um, is pretty simple uh, and it has led us to very strong results on diversity, but the, the point of view is very simple that we've got no positive discrimination when it comes to uh, where we put our cash. But equally, we take a huge amount of effort to remove bias from where we put our cash. Mm. Uh, and then that results in us having a much stronger record, both on gender, uh, regionality, and also ethnicity than, than anybody else that we've come across within the industry. So let me give you an example of, of how that kind of manifests itself. So first of all, our basic premise was to make gathering deal flow as inclusive as possible, because if we make that easy for entrepreneurs, then that gives us more quantity. Mm. Uh, if we make it so that we go beyond the London bubble, we go beyond the networks that often you know the financial services industry relies on then we will get to see different businesses uh, and we will get to see businesses from parts of the country and from different communities that wouldn't necessarily um, come forward to traditional fund managers so that was the kind of fundamental reason we had our competition and it's kind of interesting to us that Whereas 65% of our kind of funding ends up in London in the Southeast, actually 70% of our funding has ended up beyond London and the Southeast. So mm. we, um, we also have the competition because one of the things that Paul and I realized when we reviewed our portfolio is that the more disciplined we were about looking at our deal flow, the better the decisions that we made. And so we set up this monthly competition in part 
to gather deal flow, but also to really discipline us. Mm. And so uh, we have this regular rhythm that we go through. We've got six different stages to the competition. Uh, although it's a monthly competition, it takes about two months to distill. Regular disciplined stages that we go through. We always keep our promises to the entrepreneurs as to when we're going to get back to them so we don't leave them hanging. Um, but it disciplines us to go through a rigorous process. Mm. As part of that, we also get external judges on board. So that helps to um, elim eliminate some of the biases that we have. So we, we, we try to make sure they're from different backgrounds because unfortunately we're two white middle-aged gray-haired blokes from the Southeast, like pretty much every other finance house out there. But we're very conscious that we have biases and we, and we do lots to eliminate them. The other thing that we do is, is we actually say ditch the pitch. Um, we think ditch, we, we think pitching is a really bad way to select investments. I think it's actually, it's a bad way. I'm an innovation consultant. It's a bad way to look at ideas. Um, people tell me it's a bad way to pick up dates. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that pitching is, doesn't, isn't actually that helpful. Mm. Um, and I think one of the, you know, we, we, we were looking at that purely from a, investment perspective but also we subsequently realized that actually that probably helps on gender as well because blokes are often just generalizing but blokes are often you know full of the 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 the, the kind of the confidence and bullshit um where the communication and the bluff and bluster can actually overpower the the true essence of the business mm. whereas women often not always um will be uh, a bit more considered um and a bit less forward um so we think other ways other than pitching are better to equalize um the skills of entrepreneurs and you know and it's interesting that whereas only nine percent of our kind of funding goes to businesses with female founders 40 percent of our funding has gone to businesses with female founders mm. um and then also on ethnicity uh we don't actually, we can't even find a benchmark on this, unfortunately. Um, but 19% of our funding has gone to businesses with ethnic founders, mm. non-white founders, um, which we imagine is is probably um, a much higher proportion than the industry. Yeah, it's, it's quite hard to get a lot of funds to actually uh, commit to what their percentages are at the moment. So <laughs> I'm not surprised you find it hard to, to find a benchmark, but it's really interesting to hear how the, you know, ditching the pitch is, is actually helping to change the, change the balance of, um, of, of investment as a, as a. And, and look, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. I mean, we, we, we did our numbers because we encourage our, entrepreneurs when we work with them to really analyze their performance and look at mm. data to see what's happening and so it'd be a bit ironic if we weren't doing that ourselves and we just kind of stumbled across these numbers and then we asked ourselves okay well what was driving that so there's a little bit of post-event rationalization here so i don't know whether the pitching thing is helping or not but what we do know is that it helps us make better investment decisions and, and mm. that, that's what we're about super okay um we obviously can't ignore the other big event of the last year of the of the pandemic. How how's it impacted investing so far from from your perspective? And do you feel that there's going to be longer term impacts? Yeah, so I think what's been really what what we realised. So the first thing we realised 
when when we could kind of see it coming out of China and when it was starting to enter Europe, particularly Italy, we we sat down with each of our businesses and we thought about the potential impacts. And we were very much focused there on the short term. And, you know, and frankly, for two or three months, we we only focused on the immediate fallout. Mm. But then we started to lift our heads up to the horizon and started to see that actually we needed to think about this in two different ways. And I think this has gotten a bit lost uh, within the investment community, that there's two very different things that are happening that affects, affects your view of a business within and beyond the pandemic. Um, one thing that's happening is short-term headwinds and tailwinds. So there are businesses that were affected hugely by lockdown um, and in a really negative way. There were businesses that were helped by lockdown. Mm. Um, so there's, there's headwinds and tailwinds. And actually working out which of those a business was going to face and how much of those they were facing and kind of what yeah. those were is actually pretty, pretty important. And separating that from the second dynamic which is the long-term systemic changes that changes in behavior are bringing about. And I think that for a lot of investors, they kind of miss the fact that those are two completely different things. So to, 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 to make that a bit more real, we've got, I mean, we actually did pretty well through the pandemic. It's a really hard thing to say, uh, but we were, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, the pandemic, as everybody says, it is, it's kind of accelerating trends that were already there and we were kind of following those trends. So mm. we don't have any physical retail, but we've got a lot of direct to consumer retail that's been doing well. Um, we've got some, uh, we've got some medical stuff that is remote that's doing well, you know, so actually a number of the trends were accelerated and, 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 we, and we kind of did all right out of that. We've got one business, um, Bedfolk, which is direct to consumer bedding and absolutely was at the eye of everything that people wanted. It's got, a, it's got a proposition that's all about nesting and wellness and the home, uh, you know, exactly at the point where everybody was like looking to invest in their home because we were yeah. going off our <laughs> home behind us. Um, it was direct to consumer, so um, benefited there. And frankly, it's kind of main competitors within the category are department stores. You've got Debenhams gone. You've got House of Frazier in turmoil. You've got John Lewis, which are um, struggling. Uh, and so huge kind of positives. They've grown. They were, they were already growing very fast. They grew even faster. We're not kidding ourselves that that, head, that, that tailwind is going to turn against us at some point. Mm. But actually, the underlying proposition is super strong. We've made the most of it. And that business has grown from, we first invested two years ago. It was at six grand a month. Um, the first SEIS investment that we made. Uh, in just 24 months, that's grown to uh, 400 grand a month. Wow. So, I mean, unbelievable stratospheric Yeah. Growth. And we don't think that's going to slow. We, we, don't, we don't think that's going to reverse at any point, but we do think that the scale, the, 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 the rate of growth will, rate of yeah. Growth, um, and that's because great tailwind, 
But actually, the longer term systemic change, okay, there will still be a shift from, uh, and they'll maintain a shift from physical to online shopping, but it won't be uh, as marked. You know, I think that, that the high street will bounce back. It will look very different, um, and there'll be less shops, and there'll be less volume through shops and everything, but it will bounce mm. back. There's a, there's a pent up demand there. We had another business, um, Weekly 10, or have another business called Weekly 10, which is about measuring uh, sentiment and engagement within organizations uh, and measuring performance. Mm. And that, as soon as the pandemic broke, actually kind of struggled for a couple of months because you know, every business out there was thinking about the here and now. But we said, look, this is gonna, this is gonna change. What they're gonna need to do more than ever is understand sentiment engagement yes. working remotely. So let's, basically shift all our marketing activity over to that. And then we had a spot of luck, which was only, only three weeks before the pandemic hit. The, um, the business had gone on to um, uh, an integration with Microsoft Teams. And then we benefited hugely from Teams becoming so um, mm. such a prevalent. So prevalent, yeah. So, um, so that's where we had a, a kind of a, a headwind turning into a tailwind but then fundamentally i do believe there will be a, a shift in uh remote working it will it will it will reverse back a little bit from where we are now but then it will find yeah. kind of happy medium yeah not not fully but but definitely a shift a shift back to the way things were so in that direction so so that's where weekly 10 is is well set up for the future as well um, but we, but you kind of got to strip out the, the 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 turmoil from the last few months and just look on the on the long term there. Although having said that, that's growing like billio as well. I mean, um, that that in in twelve months is growing to a, a four hundred grand annual recurring revenue in just twelve months. So, um, so that's doing well as well. Mm. So, yeah. There was some long, a long winded answer to your question, but I think that the key thing separate out two things. Pandemic, lockdown induced headwinds and tailwinds that are relatively short term and versus the uh, conditions that are caused by systemic changes to consumer behaviour. Mm. I, I know you invest at, at seed and not at pre-seed, but one of the things we've seen in the, in the stats over the last year is that pre-seed investments really suffered, whereas seed and, and series A has is, is actually been relatively okay bit lower but relatively okay um as investors kind of stepped back to support their existing portfolios and and as they took a more risk averse approach and said we're, we're only going for ones that are showing that they've got revenue that's working already um do, do you think that that's going to continue much longer term or do you think with with you know coming out of lockdown hopefully finally in in you know fully in june that we'll start to see people willing to take more of a punt on the very early stage businesses yeah i think actually we're already seeing that so um i mean we we i i, I don't particularly like the terms pre-seed seed series a because i think they're massively confusing um i think if you ask one person to define them and then ask another person to define them they'll they'll put different values on yeah. them. they'll describe them in financial terms they'll describe them in business maturity terms i think they're they're pretty pointless terms 
But as far as, yeah, if you, if you look at early stage, um, and we do SEIS and EIS, uh, and we're generally the first in on SEIS into a business. Sometimes there's some, you know, some family and friends and angels in there already. Um, but whereas that was very difficult during the calendar year of 2020, uh, in the first quarter of 2021, or the last quarter of the tax year 2021, um, then we started to see SEIS kind of freeing up a little bit. Mm. And actually, you know, come come March, it was actually pretty good, SEIS. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm confident it is freeing up a little bit. I think it's interesting when you you kind of correlate the when you correlate you know, uh, tax advantaged investing SEIS and, and EIS with a market that has got completely nothing to do with it which is like the normal kind of public equities market they've got no correlation at all except that there is a kind of a bit of a sentiment driver there mm. the, yeah SEIS and EIS is the last cash out of the investors bottom draw um, and it's only where they fit when they feel so sort of like relatively confident about everything else that's going on. <laughs> um, do they feel that they can really kind of like dip into that bottom drawer? Yeah. Uh, and that's what we were seeing in March. They were like, well, actually, you know, maybe things aren't as bad as. Bad yeah. As they're before. starting to starting to see that confidence level coming back. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Super. Okay. Um, uh, so apart from that kind of, burgeoning uh, trend back to to early stage investment are there any other kind of current trends that you're seeing particularly in startup investment whether it's sector focus um, amounts of raise where money's going um, in terms of early or late uh... um, I think it's very difficult to tell I think you you, you know there's, there's some great services out there like um, you know like Bowhurst for example is really good for looking at um, where cash is going but but none of them are, I think, particularly reliable, and therefore you get a lot of competing um, competing views uh, that are sometimes contradictory. I guess from from what we're seeing, um, you know, I think there's there's still some overblown sectors. Uh, we invested in a fintech business uh, uh, six weeks ago. Uh, that was the first fintech business that we've um, uh, invested in since we set up Worth Capital because we think it's a massively overblown uh, sector and we've, we really struggle to find valuations that work. Um, and generally we find, you know, we often find businesses that have got great solutions that are desperately in search of a problem to solve. Um, and we often find in fintech that, that you know, the customer acquisition costs bear no relation to the potential lifetime value mm. uh, you know, with some of the, the huge businesses like some of the challenger banks etc but we've, we we found this business which is a coming an e-current account product for uh, um the for the contingent workers and students coming into the uk uh, of which there are 1.5 million a year and it's really difficult for them to set up a bank account before they yes get, you know? um and this this account can be set up 
before somebody arrives in the UK and it solves a massive problem for recruitment agencies that are recruiting people like mm. construction workers or agricultural workers or care workers or nurses or supply teachers. Mm. Solves a big problem for them. So, so they're very happy to market that product for us. So that basically removes our cost of acquisition. Yeah. So, um, how do we get onto that? So, yeah, so I think fintech is generally overblown, um, but there are some gems in there uh, and we think we found one. Uh, I think, you know, basically I think tech is overblown. You know, we, we don't ever talk about looking for tech. Uh, we look for um, markets that have problems that need solving and look mm. for have got great insight into markets. As soon as somebody describes a fintech product to us or a health tech product or whatever, we kind of roll our eyes and think that, you know, th- th- this, is, this is somebody that's trying to sell us a solution and what we want to understand is what the problem is. Sure. Um, you know, and similarly, actually, when people get, you know, we, we, we get turned off by anybody describing themselves as a blockchain business or an AI business or whatever, that's just a means to an end. Mm. Uh, and we're much more interested in what what is the value for the consumer or the business um, from from buying the product. Yeah, I mean, we, we actively tell our clients not to dis, not to describe themselves as a blockchain business. Yeah, because nine times out of ten, actually, investors are a bit scared of blockchain and they don't quite understand it. And if you tell them it's a blockchain business, they go, no, sorry, I'm not interested. But if you tell them it solves this problem in this market and we use some intelligent tech to help us do it, oh, that's fine. Then, then you know, it's a, it's a much different reception. So, yeah, com- completely agree on the, on the, on the blockchain front. Um, and, and those are kind of, I guess, those are trends of investments that have happened. Obviously, you've got this huge deal flow coming through or potential deal flow coming through each month of you know a hundred or more um uh, uh businesses wanting to raise are you starting to see any different kinds of emphasis on you know the the deal flow that you're getting or or is that still kind of the same sort of mix as you've seen the last couple of years i think it's, i think it's very similar um you know we still get we still get plenty of food and beverage ideas um we have to be pretty blown away by proposition to be interested in food and beverage because it's such a difficult space to get traction Hmm. Um, that's not to say that we don't kind of we don't look at those but but we haven't invested in a food and beverage um idea for a long while um i think we get probably a few more SaaS businesses um, SaaS B2B, which, you know, generally can be interesting. Um, can, you know, that can be a good commercial model. Again, mm. we don't invest in commercial models. We invest in solutions for people. Um, but yeah, they can be interesting. We probably are a few more of those. Um, I think we get a, a few businesses that are kind of desperately trying to justify their idea through a COVID lens, which I think is a bit pointless. Um, and we're very more short termist. Yeah. And we're very kind of conscious that um, we, you know, we, we've got some businesses that have got had great traction in in six months. But actually, you've got to question um, if that's something where, as I was describing earlier on, there may have been a tailwind. Mm. The question is, is that sustainable? 
um, or was that just a, a kind of lockdown friendly business? Yeah, yeah, just a just a lucky uh, happenstance. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we we've, we've talked about the fact that you 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 kind of um, don't necessarily find new investment opportunities; they come to you through your um, through your uh, competition. Um, what's the what's the kind of stages that happen in the in the competition you talked about the six phases that you've got yeah so so first up we make it super simple for everybody to enter so it's only a two-page summary or a two-minute video and and we love it when it's a video and we love it when it's just a founder talking about their proposition uh because that gives us a sense of whether they can articulate that proposition in a way that, that makes sense. Mm. Um, so that's super easy. I mean, it literally can take five, six minutes to enter the competition. That also means that that makes it easy for us to distill that first stage. So um, generally it's just the three of us, Paul, Haley, and uh, I that look through every entrant and we look through that independently. Uh, and then we just tick cross maybe and um, we, and funnily enough, the meeting I had just before this was um, for our May competition. And we spent a couple of hours and we didn't talk about those that we all ticked and we didn't talk about those that we all crossed. Um, no point kind of just ending up in violent agreement with each other. What's interesting is where we tease out um, where one of us has seen something that the others mm -hmm. have what is that and can you know are we all enthusiastic about the same or can we get enthusiastic about the same thing so that brings in different perspectives and gives us a bit of a kind of a safety net and then from there we ask um, people to uh, give us more information and that we've got a series of questions but we just say you know if you if you've got a business plan send us the business plan and then review these questions and you can tick it's in the business plan we're not asking anybody to you know write rewrite it, it all yeah um and again we actually prefer to see people's own documents rather than fitting into a like a box ticking exercise mm. we see how people can articulate we want to see how their brand comes to life um but there again if somebody hasn't got a pitch deck or a or a business plan they can answer our questions um uh, and they can also answer our questions if you know that does, if the question doesn't happen to be in their pitch deck so then we, again we go through those independently and that's generally where our guest judges come in as well uh, and then we have five criteria uh, which we score out of seven there's a little bit of um science behind using one to seven rather than one to ten um so we score one to seven on each of those five criteria, we weight that according to the criteria, then we average that across all of us. But then, and then we kind of, we've got the scores, but that's just stimulus for us as to kind of where everybody is. And then we have a, um, a day where we look through all of those and then we decide who we want to take to the next stage, which is a, um, a telephone interview. Uh, and then we kind of dig into some questions that aren't quite clear or some things that we're interested in. Mm. Then we come back together again um, and review the results of those interviews. And then we decide who we want to take to our final stage um, or the final stage of the competition, I should say, which is a half day um, with Paul and myself. Uh, and that's a, 
a great chance for us to really kind of dig into the business and dig into the chemistry um, with the founders, um, to dig into the strategy, into the market, into the marketing plan, et cetera. And at that stage, we're normally starting to come up with, you know, some of our ideas as well. And so, you know, ideally everybody should go away from that meeting thinking, oh, wow, there's like some real kind of chemistry and we can add a load of value into that business as well. Mm. Uh, and then we consider, and then you know, generally we pick one business a month, but sometimes it might be two, sometimes it might not be any. Then we have uh, a meeting with our fund manager. Uh, we're not FCA authorized, so we don't manage our fund. What we do is we make uh, a commercial recommendation to our fund manager as to where the fund could invest. Mm. They give us a really hard time about our rationale and then they may or may not decide that that would make a good investment for the fund. Uh, and then following that, there's a little bit of little bit more technical and commercial due diligence um, just to kind of make sure that um, everything is as it, as, as it should be. Yeah, super. Okay. Um, it's really interesting to see the, um, you know, the way that it, the way that it filters down. Um, and I, I often do, um, talks to groups of, of early stage founders and there's always a real sense of shock in the room when I you know say to them you know potentially a VC gets 50 decks a week to look at uh, and and they might you know they'll filter out 45 straight away and they'll get and then they'll properly look at five and they might talk to two and then across the whole of the year they'll only invest in four to six and and there's a real oh, really that's you know that's how small the odds are of yeah. being the ones that make it through so I think it's super important that people understand the level of filtering that goes on to to get to the the, the final um the final opportunities that do get the cash absolutely but there we go I also think that um actually funny enough VCs also to to, to type, kind of take some responsibility as well for for helping people to understand that and um, also to, to feedback. So it really winds me up that, uh, that entrepreneurs rarely get feedback from VCs. Mm. Uh, even if they do, it's kind of, it's pretty cursory. So within that process that I just described, um, the, those that get knocked out in the first stage, we haven't asked them to do very much and we haven't done a huge amount and therefore we haven't got a huge amount to go on. So, you know, they, they get an email and they get an email on the date that we say that we will send them an email. So we don't leave them hanging, but we don't give any kind of personal feedback at that stage. But from that stage onwards, we, um, we give uh, bullet point feedback for a number of things that we, that, that we found really positive and a number of things that we found weaknesses. So the, the entrepreneurs get a sense of, and we don't ask for them to agree with it or not, and they may very well not. Um, but the point is that it is that's the impression that we've got, and that should help them the next time they 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 talk. Yeah, to yeah, definitely. And I think I think one of the other things that um, would almost help reduce this massive traffic funnel in a lot of cases is if more VCs were super clear about what their investment thesis is and what makes them turn down a company because then they wouldn't have to wade through 50 decks a week. 
they might actually only get sent 25 because they're the 25 that really match to their investment thesis. Whereas I think at the moment, some of them are very wide and, and woolly in terms of what they say they might invest in. But when you get you know, behind closed doors, they've actually got really specific criteria, but they don't share them. And it, it just adds to this kind of traffic and bombardment of let's just send our deck to anybody just in case. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think there are some VCs that actually have got woolly criteria. Mm. And, and that's kind of fine. And, and actually what they're saying is, well, just kind of make it real for us and we may or may not be interested. In, and I think that's, that's fine. But I agree with you. If a VC comes back after the event and says, well, it's, that's just not a set to the we invest in, then might as well have described that up front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or where they've got, you know, we don't invest in below a million ARR yeah. or things like that, that they don't say um, publicly. Um, I, th I think that could be uh, improved on a, a lot. Um, okay, so... But investors have FOMO as well. <laughs> <laughs> We're just like everybody else. We've got a fear of missing out. So, you know, you do, I do have some sympathy that, that nobody wants to make their criteria so um, narrow that they miss out on stuff. But mm. at the same time, um, they do have a responsibility to, to stop wasting people's time. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And... What makes, uh, you know, talking about those those stages that you go through and the things that make you, you definitely tick something straight away, what's a, what's an investment approach um, or an opportunity that makes it something that really draws you in? What's the kind of thing that really grabs you when you, when you get a new opportunity to look at that makes you go, this is an immediate tick, not a maybe? Yeah, so a, a new and a different and a compelling insight into a market is really kind of turns us on. So, I mean, it's very difficult to innovate if you see uh, a market in exactly the same way as any, everybody else does. Mm. You know, it's like, I mean, this is, this is what, you know, problem big, big businesses have. They, they use their, what I would term, foundational insight um, the kind of same data that they're always using at and the same data that their competitors are using at and then think that they're going to have some kind of really interesting ideas off the back of it. To, for, for innovation, you have to see things in a different way. You have to have different mm. insight to get differentiated ideas. So, um, so a, a kind of a, a compelling and empathetic uh, sense of a market is always really useful for us. Um, and then if that market feels of sufficient scale, uh, then that's also um, interesting. Uh, if the, the idea feels kind of properly new and different, um, so, you know, real innovation. If the, if the founder can articulate that in a, in a kind of compelling kind of way, and that doesn't mean... Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you've got to have a great, you know, brand because nobody has a brand at this stage. All they have is a, like a name and a logo. Um, but it just means, you know, and, and, and people may not even have that, but it just means being able to describe what you're bringing to your customer mm. in a way that A, is clear enough to make sense and B, has a little bit of sizzle around it. Um, because that's, that's, you know, something that you need to be able to build a brand. Um, and then 
also of course we're interested in the team and what they've done before and whether there's some kind of evidence that they can make shit happen because mm. you know the best yeah. idea in the world but unless you've got people that can actually knuckle down uh, and make stuff happen and have got a reasonable amount of resilience and tenacity then they're not going to get past the bumps in the road yeah definitely and it, it's um i think the t- the team ones i, I saw a, a startup that will remain nameless recently but the they it was it was basically compiled of a group of very senior people who had all been at very senior levels in big corporates and had decided to set up this startup and they had a, a huge board and virtually no doers in the organization at all and and you could see that already it was kind of not getting the momentum that it should because they'd got the makeup of the of the team completely wrong so even though you'd look at the names individually and go wow their experience is incredible their ability to create momentum didn't exist because they had lots of decision makers and and no people to actually push the pedals around I completely agree with you we're we're actually really kind of apprehensive about um kind of big business experience and going straight from that into a into Mm their own startup I did it and I failed uh, and I, I call it the, the the hubris of big corporate and um so I set up a retail business I was at John Lewis I, I left a really big job multi multi-million pound you know budgets and I set up a retail business with the intent to have 150 stores and you know and I should have taken a much more exper- uh, experimental approach uh, I was, you know, I was building the business for 150 stores before realizing, you know, what would work in one. Um, and yeah. see that a lot, you know, and, and, and that you, you end up seeing more about structure and process than you do about customer and insight. Mm. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm hugely wary of that. Yeah. It's not to say we don't like people with industry experience. It's just, what have they done to transition from big, big industry to, yeah. To um, cope with the culture just, shock of <laughs> spending our investors' cash. Yes, yeah, definitely. And and um, uh, one one founder described it to me brilliantly. He said, "I'm actually having to do my own IT support, and I have no idea what to do because he'd gone from having this massive team that supported him to you know, being on his own and being a founder. And it was he was like, I've got to make my own tea and." It, it was a complete culture shock. So getting over that and getting into the can-do, turn your hand to anything uh, type approach is is definitely um, an adjustment. Uh, okay. Um, obviously, you've got this the competition mechanism. So maybe it's slightly different for for you guys than perhaps um, other VCs. But do you find that people approach you? early to try and build some relationships before they actually need cash or or is the mechanism of the competition such that people tend to just arrive at your door at the point when they want to apply and they don't come for earlier conversations we uh, sometimes they might try to do so um but we will kind of direct people to the competition um what we do do though is that if we see you know somebody in the competition that we think could be interesting but 
they need to do some stuff. We'll put that into our feedback and we'll say, let's continue the conversation. Mm. So, you know, in Bedfolk, for example, they, they were in a competition maybe eight months before we invested in them because, you know, we, we had the conversations, we couldn't find, we couldn't really actually find the right deal on valuation. Um, and I think they, and they needed some more time to kind of prove some points in their business. And they also needed some time to talk to some other investors and then, but we just continued the dialogue. So the, the competition isn't necessarily a route to instant equity funding. It's a route into a conversation with us. Mm. Another bit, uh, Vitru health, health, actually, that was a year between them entering the competition and us investing. Um, we had some pretty strong feedback, actually, about the market that they were looking for. And they took that on board and they kind of changed their marketing approach and actually started to prove out some of that. And then we and then we invested. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, we, we, we so although it's different, the competition is our entry point. Yeah, it's similar in the sense that sometimes you know we will have a, a number drives of those developmental conversations. Conversations with yeah, yeah, okay, uh, and you know we've talked about what makes a what makes a yes, but what's a what's a uh, a no? Not necessarily you know when you first get the deck, but maybe even up to the stage where you're doing the half day workshop with them. What's the what are the kind of things that that make you go? actually that's not one for us i know there's the kind of basic criteria of it's not you know it's not um sufficiently innovative in its market but is there particular founder behavior or or things that you've uncovered that that become big no's yeah so a lot of what we're testing out is the chemistry within the founding team uh, and then also with us so um you know, we're looking for good balance within the team. We're looking for good kind of relationships within the team. We're kind of trying to sniff out where are the risks to that relationship. Um, we're looking for how, you know, how charismatic people are because, you know, these people are going to need to lead teams. Then they're going to need to find customers. Then they're going to need to um, influence suppliers. They're going to need to get more investment down the line more often than not. Mm-hmm. They need to be able to carry themselves in a, in a certain way. Um, we, you know, one, one, of the, the, one of the criteria we added recently, actually, to our kind of description of what we look for within a team is charm. Um, you know, frankly, we don't need to hang out with people that we don't want to hang out with. Mm. So we don't. Uh, so if during the course of the process, we've, you know, we've, we find people that have a, you know, some kind of sense of entitlement or, um, aren't willing to put in the, the 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 hard yards or don't treat you know everybody around us um, with the kind of respect that we we would expect you know whether that's the receptionist in our you know, we always talk to the receptionist in our shared office yeah uh, afterwards not least because we're often sharing samples with them and stuff like that they are kind of like they're our they're our testing panel um, but yeah we'll get we'll get a point of view from people if if people mm-hmm. do rude when they come in or whatever so we we take a very 360 degree look and we also do a little bit of um uh kind of pseudo psychometrics 
um, to, to test out people's behaviours and attitudes. Uh, so, and that's that's the that's the thing that generally sort of like kind of doesn't work for us is 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 the mm. test. Yeah. Generally, when you look at the mistakes we've made, um, both within Worth Capital and um, ten years angel investing before that, generally it's been the team where we've fouled up. Yeah, decided to just go ahead and ignore that one niggle that that's telling you no, and yeah. it, that turns out to be the the issue that knocks it all sideways. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's uh, talk about valuations. What what are the kind of key challenges for you when you're evaluating um, a startup's valuation that they're putting forward? Well, I think that I mean I think the, the I mean the challenges are um, varied. Uh, I mean the real problem is that you can't take a purely scientific approach to a an early stage valuation. Mm. And, and I think, you know, sometimes people make a valiant attempt. I mean, our worst case scenario is when an accountant has tried to, 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 to get in on the act and is advising a, an entrepreneur because they're trying manfully to kind of make it scientific and it's all, you know, bullshit built upon bullshit. Um, what we want to do is get to a place where... I mean, the, the, the only valuation that counts is the one where somebody is willing to invest and somebody's mm. willing to give up equity at that price. So that's what we try and find. The, the framework that we use to have an objective conversation about it is just a little equation. And it's evidence times momentum times potential leads to the valuation. And the time signs are important because if any of those three things are missing, then it should actually be zero. Mm. you kind of want a balance of evidence momentum and potential and, and and all too often you get some ridiculous uh valuation based upon pure potential with zero evidence and zero momentum now, yeah work for an investor however early stage and what we want to see is um a decent story across those three different mm. elements. uh so so that's, and so that's the kind of conversation that we have. And, and we're not looking to shaft uh, an entrepreneur. Why would we? We're going to have to work with them for five years. So if, you know, if somebody ends up disgruntled about the, the, the price of the investment when we first went in, that doesn't serve our purpose at all. Mm. So we're never looking to, to do that. What we're looking for is a, a fair, um, a fair uh, uh, valuation based upon the very, very, very considerable risk. I think that's the, that's, that's the other kind of tricky thing from the entrepreneur's perspective, because, of course, the entrepreneur thinks that their idea is a surefire winner. You know, they've got this kind of, they've got blinkers on, and we kind of need those blinkers. We need belief and we need uh, mm. confidence from the entrepreneur. But at the same time, they've got to recognise that as a VC, we, we are only expecting some of our investments to, to live and only... Mm one or two to do really, really, really well. And everybody thinks that theirs is the one that's going to do really, really well, but it doesn't work like that. So the, the valuation has to work within the context of a portfolio, not just within the context of one business. Mm, yeah, definitely. I know one um, investor who, uh, who always asks founders, tell me why your business will fail, um, just to force them to recognise that 
that it's very possible that it will and to make sure they understand how that could happen yeah um so yeah important important question okay um <coughs> excuse me and then um once you get into that kind of people tend not to talk very much about the legal process portion of the deal the going through the term sheet details and the and the due diligence lots of the focus in startup world is about you know getting in front of the investors and doing the pitch but actually deals quite often fall apart going through the the due diligence phase and what are some of the things that that you typically see either delay the deal massively or actually make it fail when it's going through that stage uh the main thing really is um kind of intellectual property and where that's either you know could be as formal as patents or it could be kind of who who has ownership for um you know design and stuff like that particularly if there's been other founders involved Mm. um so we you know we dig into that and that that can unearth problems um there shouldn't really be at the very early stage, there shouldn't really be too much that can go wrong. I mean, basically it's, if there, if there's any promises that have been made, then regardless of whether those promises are material or not, they are material to the relationship. Mm. So um, if we in due diligence find that those aren't what was expected then that will raise a big red flag about the um, about the trust that could be had in, in in the relationship. So yeah, so that, I mean that's really where it can go wrong. I mean as far as as far as the legals go, um, look, lawyers will always make work for themselves. So that's something we kind of guard against. We've got, we mm. we always put a shareholder agreement out there. We we want people to take legal advice on it, but at the same time we don't see any reason why they should change it. Um, because it's you know pretty much the same shareholder agreement that's been used for multiple you know, dozens of investments before. So, um, but you know lawyers will always want to make work for themselves. But it's, it's just a question of kind of managing managing the legal process really. Yeah, but it, it's, it's harder you know even after the first raise when you're when you're going into an investment where there's already existing investors, um, or where you know where other VCs are following on from us. Um, that's where it starts to get, you know, trickier um, because you just you've got different parties to to manage. But it shouldn't really be a it shouldn't really be a big deal. Um, mm. And it's just all about communication. Like most things, it's just as long as everybody's kind of clear and is doing things quickly. Yeah, then you can then you can get through it. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Lack of momentum kills deals because. Yeah. You know, just something else will come up in the interim and yeah. if people get bored if investors get bored they'll just like well what? yeah why why are we hanging on for this one definitely okay um one final question to to close out the the episode of the podcast um what's one thing that you would love all founders to do when they're preparing to raise investment Uh, I think think about the story that they're looking to tell from the investor's point of view. So 
I would hope that no entrepreneur would dream of telling their brand story to a potential customer from anything other than the customer's point of view. And that's exactly what you're doing with an investment story is you should be telling the story from the investor's point of view. So get into their shoes and think about, well, what is it that they need to believe and what is it that they're going to need to, um, uh, to overcome to believe in your, in your business. Uh, and then I think that leads you to a strong story about the market, a strong story about your innovation, a strong story about your potential commercial model, if, even if it's not there, and a strong story about your, your team. And then you'll kind of end up with the right kind of components to, to sell the business. But you have to get into your, your investor's shoes. Definitely. Definitely. That's, that's one of our key tenets in the whole investor-ready approach is, is you have to be able to assess your business objectively from an investor's viewpoint rather than just standing on the inside going it's amazing because you know they'll be looking for lots of gaps they have lots of questions and you've got to be able to make sure that you can give them the ability to to knock out all of those concerns and worries and and make it easy for them to say yes so not necessarily in the first instance need to get them excited first and then need to then deal with the other things but yeah uh, so it doesn't have to all be in one go. Uh, and that's the other part of being in their shoes is being empathetic to the, you know, the, the, the way that you communicate with them at the appropriate time with the appropriate materials. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will finish the episode there.